0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 16th, 2022, and this is show number 910. If you're hearing this before 5 p.m. Pacific time on Sunday, then you'll hopefully realize that there's no live show this week. We're in Texas for our grandson Parker's first birthday, and I originally had this vision of doing the live show from our son Kyle's house. But then I thought about four grandchildren running around and hardwood floors, only one room with the proper desk at which to sit, carrying all of our recording and video gear and missing bath time with the babies. With not nearly enough notice, needless to say, I called off the live show and I pre-recorded most of the show before leaving. Hopefully, I didn't leave any of you sitting lonely in the live chat room wondering where everyone was. Of course, I'm lonely doing the show without the live audience, but I'll survive. This week's guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond is Antonio Rosario. He bills himself as a full time unemployed photographer, part time semi employed videographer, and photography instructor, and a volunteer bi monthly podcaster. He sent out a tweet in which he said Dear podcasters, will someone please interview me about the iPhone 14 Pro Max? Well, I suspected that Antonio wanted to come on and have a discussion about the new phone's specs and a pixel-peeping level of detail about the resulting images from this new device, but that's not at all what he really wanted to talk about. Whether you consider yourself a real photographer or someone who just likes to take pictures, I think you'll find this introspective discussion heartfelt and memorable. You can find this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond number 746 with Antonio Rosario in your podcatcher of choice, And of course, there's a link in the show notes. I've got an idea for a new segment for the show that I think might be really fun for everybody. And it's an audience participation game. The segment is going to be called, I'm still using it. Here's my idea. If you've got a gadget or a piece of software that you've been using for a long time, write me a couple of paragraphs about it. Tell us what problem it solves for you, approximately what it cost you at the time, and why you would buy it again. Be sure to include a link if it's still being made so others can buy it too. Maybe there's a newer version out there, but that's also okay to include. Since these will be short segments, I don't even need you to record them for me. I'm hoping I can get a pile of these to read to the audience, maybe in November in time for people to get get ideas for gifts for nerds. I've got a big battery pack I'm looking at that is still my go-to travel pack, and I've got very specific reasons why it's still the best one I know about. I've got obscure software tools I told you about ages ago that I can explain why they still solve that one little problem. I hope this idea tickles you as much as it does me. What I want you to do is send me an email at allison at podfee.com and make the title, I'm still using it. I've created a smart mailbox that's looking for that exact phrase, I'm still using it. And I'm collecting those together. And in those those emails, I want you to tell us that one thing that works so well that year after year or more, it's still your go-to. I'll try to remind you a couple of times more before November, but the sooner you write me a couple of paragraphs, the more likely that your I'm still using it idea will get on the podcast. I posted this as a blog post, and I already have three entries for this because I think people really like the idea. And I think people really want to know about those products that stand the test of time. Over the years, I've regaled you with tales of our various network-attached storage devices. Steve and I use our NAS for storing sensitive financial data that we don't want to be stored in the cloud. Along with hosting our Plex video library, Steve has ripped from our DVD Blu-ray collection of over 300 films. I also keep backups of various podcast creation files, including all of the video files that I create for Don McAllister's Screencast Online. For the most part, I could live without all these podcast files, but every once in a while I found a reason to go back to the archives to recover something, so I keep doing it. Our first NAS was a Drobo FS, which is known in NAS lore as the slowest network-attached storage device ever known. It technically stored data, and it was technically on the network, but it was nearly unusable. A few years later, we upgraded to a Drobo 5N, which was a huge improvement. We found we were using it more and more because it was so much faster. Then Drobo let me test out and keep a Drobo 5N2, which was a slight improvement over the 5N. Now, using a NAS allows you the luxury of having mirrored drives, so you can lose an entire drive in your NAS, and all of your data is still safe, as long as you've configured it appropriately. The NAS, in theory, will rebuild itself when it loses that one drive, creating yet another spare if there's room enough. If you pop in a replacement drive, the NAS will rebuild it to use the new one, and you've never lost any data. This data redundancy means you're protected from the single most likely failure, that of a single hard drive. The next most likely failure is of the entire NAS itself. Now, while a good vendor may help you recover from a failure like that, it's a world of hurt I never want to face. With our free-but-you-have-to-buy-the-disc drives for it, Drobo 5N2, I was able to back up the 5N2 to the 5N. Now, this didn't protect us from the third most likely failure, a fire, flood, earthquake theft from our home. I'll get back to that scenario a bit later. In June of 2020, I wrote an article entitled The Day the Drobo Died and Synology Joined the Family. I was actually kind of happy the Drobo 5N finally died because I'd been really envious of those who had moved on to Synology's NAS offerings. While Drobos do what they say on the tin, apps on the Drobo never really took off. It was a place to store files and nothing much more. Synology devices, in contrast, come with a bunch of fun, cool apps built in, and they opened it up to allow third parties to write apps, and developers hopped on and wrote great apps in droves. When the older Drobo died, I bought a Synology DS1019+. Now, the 19 in the model number means the model came out in 2019, and the 10 means it can have up to 10 drive bays. It only comes with 5 drive bays, but you can double that by adding another piece of hardware. Now the plus in the model number seems to have some vague meaning like you're more than a home user, maybe more like a small business user, but you're not really a rack mount server kind of person. <laughs> That's my explanation of the plus. Synology has been a great deal of fun over the last two years. The apps are delightful and I've learned to do so many nifty things like creating Docker containers, making my non-HomeKit devices become HomeKit compatible, and more. The one thing I couldn't easily do was back up my Synology to my Drobo. No software apps I could find would allow one to talk to the other. My solution in the end was to put a Mac Mini between them running Carbon Copy Cloner to back up from the Synology to the Drobo. This was a good solution because we never bothered to populate the older Drobo with as much disk space as the new Synology, and Carbon Copy Cloner, of course, allows you to exclude things from the backup. For example, we store sparse disk bundle backups of our computers right before we do a new compave on the Synology. These are kind of a belt and suspenders backup, so having a backup of a backup of a backup didn't really have to happen, so we didn't need to have those, dri- those uh, sparse bundle drives backed up to the Drobo. So that's why we had a, a, a working solution where the Drobo didn't have as much stored space as the Synology. Now, this setup of using a Drobo as a backup to a Synology has been humming along relatively smoothly for the last two years. And then in June of this year, Drobo and its parent company filed for bankruptcy protection. While this doesn't necessarily mean the end of Drobo, it certainly isn't the sign of a healthy company. The probability of getting continued support was looking pretty grim. But in September, just last month, I received an email from Drobo entitled, Drobo macOS Ventura Compatibility. It said, "...thank you for entrusting Drobo with your critical data. We have found that the upcoming macOS Ventura update is currently incompatible with Drobo. We cannot guarantee compatibility with future OS updates. Therefore, if you're planning on upgrading your macOS, we highly recommend backing up data that resides on your Drobo to mitigate any unknown impacts of incompatibility." Now, to be fair, the Drobo dashboard software has always been kind of a janky, weird thing, and more recent versions of macOS have been sending dire warnings about how the technology Drobo dashboard uses is being deprecated and will stop working soon. This message from Drobo is a responsible thing for them to do, and I do appreciate that they did it, because when these people are going through a tough time. But it also sounds like they don't have the staff to find out whether this is the version of macOS that will definitely kill it, and they are clearly not working on a modernized version of Drobo Dashboard that will work in the future. If they don't have the staffing to find out and fix it, then I don't have confidence that I should keep using the Drobo 5N2, even as a backup for another NAS. It would be irresponsible of Steve and me to move our Macs to macOS Ventura and just roll the dice and find out if it works. I suppose we could leave the Mac Mini on uh, Monterey and just use it for that, but that just seems kind of a shame to leave uh, an M1 Mac Mini suffering with an older OS. Anyway, that's why this article is entitled, The Day the Drobo Died Again. It was time to buy a second Synology, and you can tell I'm really, really upset about that. Well, when I'm choosing a new Synology, I always turn to Stephen I don't know how he knows so much about the whole product line of Synology, he just seems to understand it really well. Even before he bought his own, he seemed to be very well versed in the mire of different options Synology offers. He helped me pick out my DS-1019 Plus two years ago, so I turned to him again for my new purchase. This time it was a lot easier to choose, we picked the DS1522+. By the way, DS stands for disk station. So the disk station 1522+. It's the natural evolution of my current Synology. The 15 in the model number means it can have three sets of drive bays, and the 22 means it's the 2022 model, and again, the plus means it's for me. (laughs) Now, I should mention that I don't really need to be able to expand with more drive bays. When I needed to expand my storage last year, the cost of adding a new bank of drive bays was far more than replacing the existing drives with higher capacity drives. Now I think the ability to add more drive bays is for people who have already populated their existing bays with the highest capacity drives and they still need more space. The other thing that made it an easy decision was that the DS1522 Plus is the only Synology with 5 drive bays. You can get four drive bays in several models, but five is unique. I like having five drive bays because essentially one drive is always wasted in order to have the data replication with Synology Hybrid RAID, so you always have four drives worth of usable storage. With the decision on which Synology to buy taken care of, it was time to make disk drive decisions. Here again, Steven Getz is pretty knowledgeable and good at doing research. He has confessed to me that one of his favorite hobbies is helping other people spend their money. He seems quite good at it. Now my current Synology has 3 4 terabyte drives and I've replaced the other two with 8 terabyte drives. Using Synology's RAID calculator, that should give me an effective 20 terabytes of space using Synology's hybrid RAID, SHR. Now when I needed to add storage last year, it really made me sad to throw those drives away. It was such a waste of money. So this time I decided that instead of populating every drive bay with the size that I needed now, I'd instead buy three much larger drives, leaving two bays open. The cost works out more favorably now, even if I never need to increase storage. But when I do need to increase storage, I don't have to throw anything away. Stephen and I settled on Western Digital Red Pro Drives. Now, the pros have a five-year warranty instead of a three-year warranty. And that's why I went a little bit higher than I wanted to spend originally. Anyway, to achieve an effective 24 terabytes of storage, I could buy four 8-terabyte drives for $880, or I could buy three 12-terabyte drives for $810. I actually save $70, and I still have those two drive bays open for future expansion. This again is an advantage of the 5-bay DS1522+. Now you'd think I was ready to fire up my Apple card to make some purchases, but you'd be wrong. Dave Hamilton on the Mac Gab is crazy smart about Synology and NASS in general and offers some advice on buying drives. He points out that if you buy all of your drives at the same time from the same place, they're very likely to be from the same lot. If they're from the same lot, they have a higher probability of failing close in time to each other. Now, we know all drives fail, but you really don't want them all failing at the same time. Now, while I really like to have all of my purchases in one nice pile at Amazon so I can always look it up, I do like to spread the wealth on some of my bigger purchases from time to time, so I bought my previous and this new Synology at B&H Photo. The DS-1522 is $700 everywhere, so you can choose where to buy. I asked B&H Chat if there was a way to buy the three drives from different lots, but they didn't have any way to do that. So I bought one drive from B and H along with the Synology. I bought one from Amazon and I bought one from Adorama. They were all identical price with free shipping, so it really didn't matter. I will be putting stickers on each one so that I know which vendor to contact if one of the drives fails under warranty. Now, before I start any kind of migration, you know I had to make a diagram, right? I know you're shocked. I wanted to make sure I had documented what I currently have in order to be sure not to lose anything in translation. The Synology has more disk space in it than the Drobo, as I mentioned, so not everything in the Synology gets backed up. So I diagrammed how many of which kinds of disks I have in the two NAS devices and how full the two devices were. I also documented my carbon copy cloner settings, so I was certain I understood which of the file shares was backed up and what exclusions there are on each of those shares. By documenting it in this way, I could see that some of the shares aren't necessary to preserve because they existed purely for experimental purposes. Might as well clean things up before migration, right? I still need to diagram what services I have running that I truly need to keep. So I experiment a lot and I have a bunch of stuff in there that I know I never got working and I don't use, so I'm expecting to do a fair bit of cleanup there as well. Now another benefit of diagramming my current setup is it will give me a reference to verify that the migration is successful. I want to make sure the data is there, of course, but also all of the tools I've installed and configured on the Synology. With purchasing and diagramming out of the way, there's still a lot more to figure out. I'm not actually done yet with the planning. I could simply remove the Drobo from the network, drop in the new Synology, and then tell Carbon Copy Cloner to back up from the old to the new Synology. That would seem to be the easiest path, but I would realize the least amount of benefit from spending $1,600 on a new NAS with 24 terabytes of effective storage. Another option would be to drop in the new Synology, tell Carbon Copy Cloner to clone from the old to the new, and then simply reverse the path of cloning so the new one is the one in charge. That would also be pretty easy with a slight gain in speed with the newer Synology. Now, as I was rolling these ideas around with Steven, he pointed out that while Carbon Copy Cloner can easily keep the data synced over, it knows nothing about the users, the apps, and the settings I've meticulously curated on the Synology, and I need all of that on the new Synology. Luckily, he explained that Synology has a tool called, wait for it, Migration Assistant. It provides the same functionality of the same named macOS tool. The documentation for the Migration Assistant package installer says, and I quote, Migration Assistant seamlessly migrates data and system settings from your old Synology NAS to a new one while ensuring maximized service availability. Get this, this thing actually works while all of the devices are live. So you don't actually have significant downtime while you're doing the migration. Now, I found a video tutorial by Synology that walks through the process of moving from one Synology station to another using Migration Assistant, and it was pretty straightforward. I'm still really glad I watched the video first though. There's quite a few little points made in the video that will make the process easier and less error prone. I'm going to watch it again and take notes the second time through. Now that I understand how to make my new Synology look exactly like my old Synology using Migration Assistant, I still have many unanswered questions. For example, when Migration Assistant finishes, why have two identically named devices on my network, will their only difference be their IP addresses? I do know that after Migration Assistant runs, it disables all services on the old Synology, so that should help things a little bit to try to tell them apart. What's to keep us from just accidentally storing files on the old Synology? I mean, we're reasonably clever people, but I can just see some macro I've written somewhere that's going to shove stuff on the old Synology, and then it won't be on the new Synology. Now, my end goal will be to have the new Synology back up to the old Synology. So, do I just want to have it back up my data? Or do I maybe is there some way to make a full clone? Is that even possible? Do I want an encrypted backup? Do I want to move my old Synology to my buddy Ron's house a couple miles away so it's technically off-site even though the same earthquake, flood, or fire might take out both of our houses because he lives fairly close by? But it would save me from theft. Is it possible to do a backup over the internet to his house? If it is at his house, wouldn't I want that backup encrypted and is that possible? Can I do that? I have so many questions. Now, I like to end my articles with a bottom line, but with that many unanswered questions, I can't do that for you yet. The good news is that I clearly have hours and hours of entertainment awaiting me when that final disk drive arrives. It's going to be a blast figuring all of this out and learning new things. I'll be sure to let you know what I learn. Also, if you've done this kind of migration yourself, or if you have two Synologies in two different locations backing up to one another, I'd love to hear about it. Maybe you've got lessons learned on what to do or, more importantly, what not to do. I can't wait to get started. This is going to be so much fun. Last week on the show, Ed Tobias joined me to tell the story of how his elderly relative got caught up in an evil phishing scam and how she almost lost a great deal of money. If you missed the story, I highly recommend going back and listening to it. In Ed's story, he explained that he had already helped this relative put all of her passwords into a password manager. Now, that didn't help her in a phishing scam because, as Bart says, it was the squishy organic bits that got compromised. But it does bring to mind that a password manager with good passwords that aren't repeated is still one of the defenses against bad actors. You may be thinking of an elderly relative or friend of yours who you really wish would use a password manager, and yet you've never been able to convince them to do it. When Steve's parents were in their mid-70s, Steve and I convinced them to use one password. We worked with him in person to get it set up, and we provide continued support when there's an issue they can't resolve on their own. Seven years ago, when his dad was 80, I asked Steve's dad if he'd come on the show in a video recording to explain why he uses 1Password and how it makes his life so much easier. He's like the poster child for why you should use 1Password or any password manager. My hope was that if people could show the video of an octogenarian singing the virtues of 1Password, maybe it would help them convince their friends and relatives to give it a try. Ken is still using 1Password at 87, and he gives the same praise today about 1Password that he said as soon as he learned how to use it. Now, I don't often do reruns, with the notable exception, of course, of Steve's annual rendition of The Night Before Christmas, but I thought maybe replaying this segment would be apropos after hearing Ed's story. There's a link in the show notes to the video if you want to show it to people. And now let's just have a listen to the audio of Ken explaining why he loves One Password so much. Hi, I'm Allison Sheridan in the NoSilicaCast podcast, and I have a special guest on today: uh, my father-in-law, Ken Sheridan. And Ken has agreed to come on to talk to us about One Password and how it's maybe made his life a little bit easier, and how we uh, talked him into using it, and what it's been like for him. So, uh, Ken, uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate your uh, honoring me.
0: (laughs) Well, um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about what your life was like before having 1Password, uh, a password manager to take care of your passwords. And then after that, we'll kind of talk about how it uh, changed after you got 1Password.
1: Oh, it was terrible before I got it. (laughs) But it's uh, much improved, yes, because of the 1Password. And there's several reasons.
0: So what was difficult for you before?
1: Well, there's two or three things I should point out. Uh, I uh, had neck surgery about two years ago, and as a result of the fusion in my neck, uh, it resulted in neuropathy in all my fingers of both hands. And so I only have about 50% feeling in fingers of both hands. So when I type uh, now, it's very slow, and it's hunt and peck. Okay. And when you have complicated passwords, which we're supposed to have, uh, it. Just makes it all more difficult to uh, put in passwords all the time, and right. that's now, okay.
0: Did you do you have a, a ton of passwords you use every day?
1: Do I have what?
0: A lot of passwords. Do you have a lot no. of passwords you use every no. day?
1: No, I, I have maybe thirty uh, total passwords, which is low, I'm sure, compared to most techies. But uh, there are three that I do use uh, frequently, and I use them a lot more because of one password. Those three are my two bank passwords, the two separate banks, and mutual fund password for all my financial transactions. And Those are very critical, and I never used to check those uh, regularly every day, but now I do because it's so quick and so easy to skip from one to the other once you're into one password. Instead of putting separate passwords in, I used to check them once every week or two. Now I check them every day. Just because it's so there's much easier. Activity there that's uh, possibly uh, fraudulent.
0: So I know you've been uh, really good about understanding security and how important it is to have long, complex passwords. So you were already good at that, except it was hard to put in because,
1: uh, as I recall, you had it on a piece of paper and you had to read it and type these things in, correct? Yeah, I had to go get it from my hiding place and, uh, in a pages of a book. And then look at the password, Look at because I could never remember these complicated passwords, 30 of them. So uh, I have to do that every time, and now I don't. So that's a big asset right there. I like that.
0: I like that. Now, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on, you said I had permission to tell people your age. Uh, you're 80 years old now?
1: Yes, I turned 80 March 6th uh, this year.
0: Hot dogs. So what was it like going from the piece of paper to using 1Password? How did that happen?
1: Steve uh, and you, of course, uh, influenced Mostly me. <laughs> uh, pardon? Mostly Steve, I think. I'll give him credit. Your son? Well, he he's the one that set it up, but you kind of uh, suggested he do do that for me. So which which I appreciate from both of you. Uh, now let's see. Back to the question. When? So, what was it like being converted over? How did that? How did you get used to it? Uh, the initial setup was what was difficult uh, okay. for Steve because he did it and. Uh, with uh, it's rather intricate in some respects because I wasn't used to it. So I basically just watched Steve set up one password without doing it myself. I gave him the information, but Steve did it. And so for anyone new at it, that's the only hard part. Right
0: right so once you got into it you got you got pretty used to just uh, I think you uh, do you
1: right-click to enter the passwords is that what you do? You don't have to do that anymore uh, uh-huh. as a result of some changes that uh, the uh, mutual fund and uh, I guess the banks made now I just uh, cl- uh, click once uh, to uh, or double click on the individual uh, uh, account uh-huh. and uh, then it opens and then I click again because the password and passwords and the uh, ID uh, uh, codes already in there so uh, I don't have to basically it's a two-click job now
0: Wow that's fantastic yeah so uh, I don't want to put complete words in your mouth but I'm going to <laughs> would you say that you feel like you're able to be more secure now because uh, you've got those good passwords and you don't have to remember them well
1: yes yes <laughs> because when you have a lot of passwords floating around, um, you, you have to keep track of them somewhere, and you have to look at them frequently, and that, I don't have to do that in I now have a uh, located a, a safe hiding place for uh, our two 1-passwords. One, one My wife, Marlee, has one, and I have one. We have them recorded on a uh, piece of paper at, in our uh, safe deposit ba- uh, box at, at our bank.
0: Oh, that's a good idea. So if anything should happen to either of you or both of you, then uh, your heirs could get a hold of the accounts and yes. be able to get in.
1: Yes. Right. So uh,
0: that, that's fantastic, Ken. Well, th- this has been great. That was pretty much all I wanted to uh, ask you about, and I appreciate you coming on and uh, doing a little testimonial for everybody to hear what it's like to use a password manager.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, well, thank you for letting me be the star of the show. For... <laughs> <laughs> I
0: appreciate the interview. Wasn't that fantastic? Ken is still one of my heroes to this day. As you listen to the podcast, do you find yourself thinking, wow, I learned something today. Or maybe Allison at least entertained me with the way she told that story. Or even, at least her guests are interesting. If any of those happen to you, then I hope you'll consider going to podfee.com Patreon and starting a continuing donation to help support the show.
2: Hi, folks. Welcome to a solo security bits with me, Bartu Shots. Um. Okay, so we let's start with some follow up from previous shows, and I think this is a first. I don't think we've ever done a follow up of a um palate cleanser before. But last time, myself and Alison both waxed absolutely lyrical about the double asteroid redirection mission, or the Dart mission. Uh, where NASA shot a uh, an impactor at um, a little asteroid orbiting a big asteroid in the hope of hitting the little one to slow it down to prove that we could hit an asteroid to deflect its course to stop it whacking into Earth in the future sometime. We didn't know then that uh, whether or not it had worked, basically. We knew they'd hit the asteroid, and we knew that they were pretty confident they had changed its orbit but they didn't have the data yet to actually back it up well thankfully in the meantime they have released the data and uh, we can say that yes it was a success they were able to change the orbit by at least as much as they were hoping for i think actually slightly more if memory serves so it worked which is great Uh, Another piece of follow up then is we've been waiting with a baited breath for some time for the Matter standard to make its way into production. And that has come a decidedly step closer. Uh, It has now been released to developers so they can start building it into the products and hopefully we, the users, can have Matter enabled stuff soon. Now I have two deep dives to do. Um... I'm going to start with Deep Drive 1, a VPN leaks on Android and iOS, and the TLDR is no real risk to users. So just bear in mind that there's absolutely no reason to set your hair on fire. This is not an Auga Auga, the world is ending story. It's, to a large extent, I think is a miscommunication or a misunderstanding or maybe a disagreement of a choice that has been made by In fact, choices that have been made by both of the uh, smartphone vendors. So the first bit of news story to break was that a security researcher discovered that an Android device will go around or will bypass a VPN connection to do its captive portal check. So there are wireless networks where you're not actually really on the internet until you've jumped through some sort of little hoop. Which is generally a login page. You know, you see these in hotels where you have to put in your room number and your surname or something, or you may see them on public transport where you just have to put in your email address and agree to be bound by terms and conditions. There's you know, various things you can do with a captive portal page. But the idea is the user has to interact with it with a web interface before the wireless network comes active. Now, if you go to a captive portal as, with a browser, every URL you go to will take you to the portal, and so you, you. get through it quickly but if you just have your phone jump onto wi-fi and you're using mail.app or your favorite chat client or whatever the internet will just appear to break you'll have a you know you'll see a wi-fi connection in the status bar but it won't actually work because it's trying to present this captive portal page only it's not on an http thing it's some other network protocol and it's all just broken and to to stop that being a terrible user experience both android and ios added in a feature where the OS phones home to a server run by the relevant company. And if that phoning home fails, they know they're in a captive portal and they can pop up an OS level browser sheet. So it's not a full browser, just like a, a, a little popover that has browser capabilities, and then they can present you the captive portal, let you do whatever it is the captive portal wants you to do, and then it will disappear and you'll be online. It's a great experience for users. And for that to work reliably, it really does need to make a direct network connection. So it needs to go around the VPN, or to use a more emotive term, to bypass the VPN. And that term "bypass" is based on the assumption that it is it is a fee, is an expected feature of a VPN that everything goes through it, and that's not a valid assumption. We'll get to that later. So, is there a danger here to users? Nope. Is not doing it worse for users than doing it? Yes. Do I think Google did the right thing? Almost. Unfortunately, they added a setting to their control panel labeled "Block connections without VPN," and if you enable that setting, it still does this captive portal check around the VPN. Now, that's an oversight. Either they need to add a bit of small print that says, you know, that even with this setting enabled, some low-level OS things will go around the VPN. Or they need to actually break capital portals when the setting is enabled, one or the other. By giving that setting, they're giving people a false impression that everything is through the VPN when that is not the case. So simple fix, you know, again, there's no malice here, right? This is a very sensible thing to do. just make the OS work better for users and make some nerds a bit cranky. Meanwhile, in iOS land, there's been some more research done on how VPNs behave on iOS, and security researchers were able to prove that Apple send some communication between the iPhone and its own servers direct. It's all encrypted traffic, and most of it is very sensitive traffic, so like health data. And the only weird exception in the list is Clips. This almost looks like apple accidentally called the wrong api or something why would you send clips it's you know, why would you root clips traffic the same way you root health data it's a weird weird one but on the whole it's basically apple taking ownership of the security of your most sensitive information all the way so you know we think of vpns as security devices but That's not necessarily actually true. It really depends on your point of view. So from Apple's point of view, handing sensitive data to a third party app is a security risk, not a security feature. Because Apple are doing the end-to-end encryption and taking care of the data that they have made very strong promises about. Like Apple makes serious promises that they'll protect this data. So. I understand why they would want to actually take full ownership of that task. So again, we're looking at a decision. Now, Apple have not been particularly forthcoming on their why, so we're kind of left to infer. But, you know, security is the obvious reason. The other obvious reason is efficiency. If you want some of these communications to be efficient, then routing them through a VPN has to slow them down. You know, it can slow them down a little bit or a lot, but it will definitely slow them down. So between security and efficiency, there are really good reasons for Apple to root some of the stuff around VPNs. And so again, what is the risk here to end users is basically nothing because there's no actual sensitive information being leaked here. It's all really well secured, properly protected. It's just not going through the VPN. And so I guess, right, the, the really, really bottom line is there's no need for any users to panic because this is about. This just isn't a set-your-hair-on-fire thing. But it's a decision that some people find very disagreeable. These people have a pretty fundamentalist view of how network routing should work, and it's not entirely accurate, really. Um, This reminds me a lot of the fact that NAT routers were not designed to work as firewalls, they just often do. That's a side effect of what the NAT router was actually for. And VPNs are not designed as privacy tools. They're designed to securely bridge two networks together. And a side effect is that is that you can in some situations use it to add privacy as well as security. But it's not what it's for. So And that router's actual job is to allow the sharing of one IPv4 address by many devices. And a byproduct of the one-to-many relationship is that an incoming connection doesn't know who to send. The router can't send an incoming connection in a sensible way because it's, you know, one outside IP to many inside IPs, where do I send the packet? Unless you've actually configured the router to tell it what to do with that impossible situation, it will just drop the packet. So the effect is that a NAT router defaults to acting like a firewall. But that's not what it's for. That's a side effect. But well, a VPN is a routing device, it's a way of routing network traffic from one network to another. Only you, instead of having a physical connection to the other network, you're, you're making a pretend connection to the other network over the internet. So it's a virtual private network. It's not actually designed to to route everything. It's just that in some situations you can configure it to route all traffic through the VPN, but actually almost nothing that claims to do that actually does that because corporate VPNs just don't because they just, you know, route traffic to the corporation through the corporate VPN and your other traffic doesn't go through the corporate VPN and most most products sold as privacy VPNs to end users make exceptions for the land traffic. So again, it's just a network interface on your machine and there's a routing table to it. And some traffic gets routed through it and some doesn't. Then it's up to the OS to route the traffic. So it can be used to route all traffic through the tunnel and therefore hide everything apart from the fact that there is a vpn connection from your isp but that's not what it's for and so apple and google having made really sensible decisions to make their os's work better is not actually you know it's not breaking vpns it's just that some people assume the vpn's primary function was something it isn't and so the end result is that they don't like Decisions Apple and Google made. And to be honest, I can see both sides. I can I can argue myself into either side of this discussion. But the one thing I can tell you is this is not a calamity or a catastrophe of any kind, which is probably the most important thing. Okay, uh, so that's deep dive number the first, and then deep dive number the second is just okay, so the TLDR from this one is remember that SMS senders can be faked. So Alison has made a point that none of us, no matter how informed we are, no matter how hard we try, are immune to scams, right? Alison has shared stories of how she ended up falling for things. Well, now it's my turn. So just this morning, my darling beloved got an SMS message that appeared in his phone as if it had been sent by Ireland's National Health Authority, the HSE, and it claimed to be an exposure notification, a COVID exposure notification. And it had a link to click to go and under some tests. Now, because the FROM address was faked, and because the HSE sent out SMS notifications of our digital certificates for vaccination um, way back in January, it the message appeared in his phone in a thread right next to the, the notification of the certificate. Now, the notification certificate really was from the HSE and it actually said, you know, for insert real name here, aged real age, your new COVID certificate is ready, right? So it had PII, which was correct because that message was actually from the HSE. And then straight under it was this fraudulent message. So when you look at it, my brain just went, oh my God, this is real, you know, name, aid, all correct. Oh my god! Another COVID notification in the house because uh, I I actually had a genuine COVID exposure um, a week ago, and I've been testing since, and so far so good. Touch all of the wood, um, and so we both fell for it. We both were taken in by the message. Just said you have been in contact with someone who has COVID nineteen variant. Follow instructions here. Link to order a testing kit. Neither of us noticed. But the link was extremely suspicious. Test-safety-ie.site. Question mark book now. Not .ie. I.e.site. That's a phishing. Like, that's pretending to be an Irish domain. Why would the HSE have a .site domain? They wouldn't. About, as I say, about five minutes after I got the message, I suddenly went, hang on a second. This isn't actually an HSE URL. And then my brain finally clunked all the way into here. and went, hang on a second. This is an SMS message. SMS messages can easily have their sender fake. Ah, saw the whole thing's a fake. Or, phew, the whole thing's a fake. Now, both of us fell for it. The only reason neither of us clicked on the link is because we'd bought 20 COVID tests last week because of my exposure. So honestly, it's just a pure accident. We didn't click the link. Now, I don't know what's at the link. Maybe having arrived at the link would have immediately become suspicious of whatever the heck is on the other end of that link. But I'm just not clicking on a known malicious link. Sorry. I, I you know, I'll do a lot of things for the show, but I'm not doing that. So yeah, there we go. So the real takeaway here is that remember, folks, Anyone can fall for this because they work by turning off your brain. Like, we are all human, and it is known how we humans respond to things, and that is being weaponized by these sods. And I'm human, you're human, we're all human. We are prone to this. So, you know, just try to remember to think twice. And remember that SMS messages can have their from address faked. And when that happens, the message gets sorted into the wrong thread in your phone, which can add a layer of credibility that just isn't earned. So don't trust. Ever-present vigilance, and just remember, it can happen to anyone. Don't don't take it out on people when they get caught in this stuff, because it's only a matter of time until it's you. Right, moving on then to action alerts. Um. It was patch Tuesday. There was a zero day fixed. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. But remember last time we talked about a horrible exchange bug and how you should buy your sysadmin a coffee? Well, that bug isn't fixed. Microsoft has said they're still working on it. And what they're doing now is they're updating the workaround daily. So people running on exchange servers really do need to tweak those rules every day as the bad guys find a new way around the rules and Microsoft find a new way around the way around And it's just a cat and mouse game and basically keep buying your sysadmins coffee if you run your own on-prem exchange because they're not having a good time of it at all. And it looks like it's going to be some time until Microsoft have a patch. Meanwhile, in iOS land, um, iOS 16.0.3 and watchOS 9.0.2 have mostly bug fixes, but they do actually contain a security fix. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Worthy warnings then. Facebook have warned that there were four hundred malicious apps with fake login with Facebook screens on iOS and Android, and if you did, they would steal your username and password and take over your account. So they have put out this warning to people and told people to be very you know not to enter Facebook details into apps that don't have an earned reputation and so forth. That's all good advice. What also happened this week is that WhatsApp are suing three Chinese companies for fraud on the app store related to fake WhatsApp login pages. I don't know if these two things are connected. Logically, to me, they seem like they're the same attack, but I can't find definite proof that they are both talking about the same thing. So either way, fake login with Facebook-like stuff is a thing. So just be careful where you choose to use login with Facebook. Make sure it's on a trust. Make sure it's not just some silly app that'll change your avatar to a donkey or something, right? Only use it in legitimate places, which is easy to say, but uh, uh, not very satisfying. I can hear Alison shouting at me already, but honestly, it, I actually can't give like blanket advice other than just if it smells fishy, don't. Um, and try reassure yourself that it's you know it's, it's an app with a reputation, and if it looks too good to be true, it is. Moving on then to, well, actually, know this is a good. To be honest, I think this is a good news. Story. So Toyota have been very proactive, and they have said that there is a possibility that two hundred ninety six thousand pieces of customer info were leaked, but basically they found that it. The information was exposed, but they have no evidence that it was actually accessed. So it's a bit like leaving your door unlocked. They've discovered an unlocked door and they can't be certain no one went through it, but it doesn't look like anyone did. So it's probably, this is actually probably literally that nothing happened other than that he would have found the problem, fixed the problem, and were very proactive about notifying people, which is already good. Add on to that another layer of reasons not to panic. The only information that was leaked was T-Connect users, email addresses and customer numbers. Not, now this surprised me, so to have been explicit, not their names, not their phone numbers and not their credit card information. So I would have sort of assumed that customer number, email address and name would have all gone together, but no, it's just email address and customer number. So not even name, phone number and definitely not payment information. So on the whole. Certainly sounds scary, nearly 300 million customers of Toyota, but actually this is thankfully probably not that much. Um, A worthy warning of a different kind. Eero have end-of-life, their first-generation Eero devices, or rather Amazon have end-of-life, the first-generation Eero devices as they own them now. So if you are using one of these old Eero routers, you need to go on a little bit of a shop You need to go buy yourself a new router of some kind to replace this now unsupported device because your router is the most important device in your network, so you really can't have it be unpatchable. And then finally, a literal, genuine PSA actually is like public service announcement from an American government agency, in this case from CISA. Foreign actors likely to use information manipulation tactics for 2022 midterm elections. Basically, the Russians and co are going to try to sow discord and enmity between Americans on the midterm elections. They're going to try cause chaos. So it just, you know, shields up. Don't believe everything you read online. Be skeptical. Look for proof. Don't just believe anything. Uh, it happened in previous elections. It will almost certainly happen again. Full details linked in show notes. It's a PDF link, by the way. So anyway, PSA, bad guys are going to try to trick people into hating each other. Be careful. Moving on then to notable news, um, a wonderful illustration of why we should always patchy, patchy, patch, patch. So this week, Jamf released details of a bug they found and responsibly disclosed to Apple, which Apple promptly patched. So assuming you have updated your Mac sometime between July and now, you are safe. However, what you didn't know and none of us knew until now is that between May and July, there was an issue with Gatekeeper that it could be bypassed on the Mac. This is one of those cases where this removed extra security that Apple have added to the Mac. So it didn't, it basically brought the Mac back to the way the Mac used to be a decade ago, rather than it being a calamity. But nonetheless, you want Gatekeeper to be there because it's adding extra security. You don't want the extra security to go away. So it's a good thing that Apple have fixed it meanwhile I this new the this next year news story caught me by surprise because it says Instagram expands age verification programming backed by AI to Brazil and India it somehow had passed me by that Instagram is actually running a trial of AI based age verification on their platform the intention being to roll it out to Europe and the u s soon uh, and the idea would be that you will need to prove your age to get onto, these, to, onto Instagram and you'll have a choice of either uploading actual government ID or doing a video selfie and letting the AI decide if you're an adult or not. You, basically you as a user will have a choice of which way to go. There's obviously more anonymity of letting the AI do it, but if you look particularly young, you may find that doesn't work and so therefore, there is a human process too. It, it I didn't know this was going on. It is going on and I guess it's one to keep an eye on. Meanwhile, um, I think this counts as good news. The former Uber CISO has been convicted of covering up the Uber mega breach in 2016. So actually, actual criminal prosecution for covering up a data breach. That is, I think, a positive development that will encourage corporations to do the right thing. We don't know what the actual fallout will be because the sentencing has not happened yet. we have a guilty verdict, sentencing will come in a separate hearing in the future, so stay tuned to figure out quite how serious this is. Meanwhile, I have a top tip to include. Uh, the Sans Internet Storm Center, uh, Johannes Ulrich uh, did an interesting blog post there where he makes a very practical piece of advice. Make yourself a security camera, a calendar. Basically, add a bunch of recurring calendar events to remind you to do security things like check your backups once a month. You know, Simple little things. Make sure everything's updated. He just has a bunch of suggestions of little things to add to your calendar. And if they're in your calendar, you won't forget to just check them. Very clever idea. I am absolutely going to follow through on this. Um, so yeah, nice, simple piece of advice from Sans. I have one excellent explainer, Uh, very simple, but good to know. Uh, In iOS 16, it is possible for your iPhone in its status area to show not the Wi-Fi symbol or the cellular status symbol, but the three letters SOS, which might make you think your phone is broken and that your phone needs help. No, what it actually means is. There is no cellular connectivity for making phone calls but there is enough cellular connectivity presumably from a different carrier you don't have a subscription with to make an emergency call basically you it's not that there's no cell connection it's just that there's no cell connection for you but you can make an emergency call so that's hopefully you don't need to know that but it's good to know i think interesting insights then um just the one basically if you're in america you probably need to be aware of this thing called Zelle. It's a service for directly sending money electronically that is actually run by a consortium of banks. And a lot of banks are just enabling it on people's accounts without them asking for it. Um, the banks will say that it's a feature. I, I would argue it's a bug and I'm not alone in that. It is very actively under attack for fraud. That like Zell fraud is really a thing. And because a lot of people have Zell on their account without really realizing it, it's unfortunately proving to be a really effective fraud. And because of the nature of the fraud, a lot of there are a lot of situations where by the letter of the law, the banks don't even owe you a refund if you're defrauded. Now, there are also situations where the bank does owe you a refund, and Brian Krebs is reporting that even when you are, by the strictest letter of the law, owed a refund, a lot of banks aren't actually paying the refunds. So you have this bizarre situation where a bank-owned product is creating fraud, and then the banks are failing, slash refusing, slash not repaying the victims of the fraud. So that all sounds pretty ick. So I think if I was an American bank customer, I would phone my bank to find out if I have Zelle and if I do and I have no use for it I would demand it be disabled it's just why take the risk anyway uh, much more detail on the Krebson Security Report link in show notes and that brings me on to some palate cleansing Um, the first thing is that this week it was Ada Lovelace Day which is a day to celebrate one of the very, very, very earliest pioneers of computer science, the amazing female in STEM, Ada Lovelace from like the 1800s. She was programming computers before computers were invented. She she was programming a machine that only existed on paper. That is some hardcore programming. She was also writing extremely insightful journal articles. So if anyone tries to say that this, is you know, there's not no room, f- actually, no. Let me put it another way. If you're a young non male and you are wondering if there's a place for you in STEM, here's a her role model. And she goes right back to the very start of computing. All hail, Ada, not all hail, that's silly. Basically, Ada Lovelace should be much more of a hero than she is. She's certainly an amazing role model. And Naked Security did what I think is, well, not. Okay, Naked Security did the best article about Ada Lovelace that I have seen, frankly, ever. And they always do something for Ada Lovelace, but they've really excelled themselves this year. It's a really thoughtful article. I learned two things from the article. I learned what Ada code looks like because it was a programming language named after Ada Lovelace. uh, And so I've seen some Ada code now for the first time. It's actually quite a nice language to read. And I have read some of her own words from some journal paper she wrote. And uh, as it's called out in the article, the line between poetry and academic prose was a lot fuzzier back then. It's not just factually accurate and insightful and informative. It's also beautifully written. It's, it's really quite lyrical and quite flowery. For an academic paper. Um, so two things I learned and definitely, definitely recommend having a read and sharing and helping to encourage more and more people into STEM. There should be room in STEM for everyone and everyone should feel welcome in here. And it, this is, a, you know, Adolfes is an amazing role model. Finally, finally, um, many moons ago, I recommended a BBC World podcast called The Lazarus Heist, which is a series on basically the state-sponsored hacking in North Korea. And what made that series so much fun, apart from the fact that it was amazing production value, is that so many of the news stories that we have reported over the years in this segment were in that, were explained and put into context and formed part of the story of that podcast narrative arc. It was fascinating to see it all strung together that way. well, the reason I'm mentioning it is hey, if you haven't listened to series one, please you know I, I highly recommend it. it's really good, but if you have, there's now a live episode where they interview um and someone who spent time in Korea and a security researcher involved and some of the people involved in making the podcast very informative, I thought, you know, very interesting little additional piece to a very good podcast series and gives us a preview of the fact that there is a season two on the way so Lazarus Heist live link in show notes well I am going to draw a line under that for this solo security bits I hope to be back with you in about two weeks with my partner in crime who I greatly miss um and until then folks remember to stay patched so you stay secure Well, that's going
0: to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me at allison at podfeet.com anytime you like? In fact, that's the address you should send your I'm still using it emails. If you have any questions, you have a suggestion, you got a dumb question that I can actually answer, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Now, everything good starts with podfee.com. So if you want to join the fun of the conversation, you can join our Slack community at podfee.com slash Slack. And that's where you can talk not just to me, but all of the other lovely Nocilla Castaways who hang out in there. You can support the show at podfee.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfee.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, which should be happening next week, Head on over to podfeedcom slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocella Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.